Well, oil prices are up, but bond yields are down after much softer manufacturing data from the US and a very mixed picture in stocks as well. It feels like there's still a lot of confusion and uncertainty around the VIX, for example, starting to edge back up again. Uh, but the focus today, the RBA, after data yesterday showing house prices are rising again, as are dwelling approvals. But of course, one month doesn't signify a recovery, does it? But how significant is the housing sector to the RBA right now anyway? And what about oil? Is that going to change the picture? It's Tuesday, the 4th of April, 2023. It's the morning call from NAB. Good morning. Well, US stocks are very mixed today. The Dow is up 1% at close. The Nasdaq was down 1%, but it uh, it picked up on some of those losses, closed uh, just 0.3% in the red. The S&P 500 in the middle somewhere, closing a third of 1% up. In Europe, the Eurostoxx 50 just in the red at close, whereas the FTSE 100 managed a half percent gain. Uh, so a confusing picture, but bond yields down just about everywhere. Down five for 10-year treasuries, down six for 10-year gilts in the UK. German bunds down four basis points uh, Aussie 10 years, well, they lifted yesterday up two basis points to 3.32%, but overnight they came down about seven basis points. So they're following that trend that we're seeing elsewhere downwards. Meanwhile, the US dollar is down 0.4%. The Aussie is up 1.6% this morning to 67.9 US cents. The pound up 0.7%. The euro up 0.6%. The Canadian dollar also up 0.7%. And oil, no surprise after yesterday's OPEC news that Brent and WTI both up more than 6.2% today. Brent close to $85 a barrel now. In fact, it got over $86.40, the highest for a month. And gold is much higher today as well. Comex gold now over 2000 up 0.8% today. It's not far off. It's 52-week high. So Sally Alder is with me this morning from JB Weir in Sydney. So those bond yields uh, falling a little. Well, they were rising earlier with the uh, with the rising oil prices. But then uh, we saw this uh, US manufacturing ISM number coming down to 46.3 so well below 50 well into contraction territory and we saw a a swift response to that on the bond markets yeah that's right phil so that was a a weaker than expected outcome and i think a bit surprising for the market um in particular because when we look into the details of the ism you know there were some pretty meaningful declines in some of the key sub-indices like the new orders sub-indice but also the employment sub-indice, and that one had sort of been holding in okay, and it was sort of, I guess, consistent with this bigger story in the US where there are pockets of weakness here and there, but that the labour market data have been pretty resilient and now finally starts to feel like we're getting some cracks in that story, um, which is interesting ahead of uh, mm. the payrolls numbers. So do, you think that's, do you think that's the element of it that really drove yields down there, the fact that we've seen a... Uh, a, a bit of easing in the labour market. Yeah, I suspect that was part of it and also just the weakness in the new orders uh, index. So mm. just sort of thinking, looking ahead, things don't look that great. Um, and this is a this has always been a very much a bellwether indicator for the US economy. So, you know, I know there's more than just manufacturing in, in the US economy, but this is something that markets have always paid attention to. And as you said, you know, at 46.3, which is where it sits in March, you know, that that's well into contraction territory um, and, you know, if you if you looked at that chart on its own, you would say that at least U.S. manufacturing is in recession, if not the broader economy. So I think yeah, that's probably yeah. why, you know, that, that sell-off in bond yields came to a, a pretty quick halt when markets saw that number. Yeah, new orders actually down to 44.3. Mm. So that is a, a, a low number, isn't it? And those... Uh, those employment numbers actually the lowest I think since uh, since before the pandemic actually the lowest they've been they were of course they were lower 
before the pandemic in 2019 we forget how things were and they weren't great back then were they no they weren't i mean the, the u.s economy was definitely feeling sort of pretty late cycle and and you felt like that expansion that had run for a long time was was really starting to to run out of puff when the when the pandemic came along so you know some people sort of say what's going on now is really just you know the pandemic was a bit of a blip and we're just sort of continuing on um, from from where we left off. But yes, you're exactly right. So, you know, prior to the pandemic, um, I think people were starting to scratch their heads and say, well, maybe this is the end of the cycle. Mm. And then, as we know, it was. Um, the pandemic came along and <laughs> put a pretty abrupt end yeah. to it. So what yeah. about uh, the uh, Caging PMI from uh, from China then as well? That was softer than expected. Yeah, that was softer than expected. Um, so it came in uh, bang on 50 for the month of February. And I think, um, you know, the story there is that that particular PMI, unlike the NBS PMI, is very much oriented to exporters. And so I guess the story you could tell is maybe um, what we saw in that number is just a reflection of some cautiousness around the global outlook, which I guess makes sense given what we've just talked about with the with the ISM. Um, and it probably tells you a story that a lot of the recovery um, that we're seeing in China post-reopening is really a domestic story and, and less about sort of leverage into, into the global story. So I think, um, you know, there have been some question marks about people got excited about the China reopening and you know, perhaps some had some expectations that there would be these big spillover effects into the rest of the, the world economy. And, and I think that story, um, you know, particularly for those who had pretty upbeat expectations, has actually disappointed somewhat. And it's really much more a story around Chinese domestic demand than, than anything else. It was going to fix all the supply chain problems, wasn't it? The inflation mm. would come uh, falling down like a deck of cards and uh, everything would be sorted out by, by, the, by the middle of the year. That was the, the, the vain hope. Uh, we're a long way from that, aren't we? I think so. Uh, so what about, what about oil prices then? How much is that going to – I mean, it's obviously going to affect headline inflation. Uh, James Bullard uh, has been saying uh, to Bloomberg it's going to make the job harder for the Fed. Mm. But, you know, on the other side, uh, uh, Robert Holtzman from the ECB said overnight uh, it's only going to have a really a borderline impact on inflation. So I wonder, you know, just how significant is this? I mean, obviously, it affects headline inflation, but it's not going to change core inflation, which obviously is what central banks are focusing on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, oil and and obviously the, the read through into petrol prices or gas prices in the US, you know, does have the ability to, I think, have some pretty meaningful short term influences on inflation expectations. So it would be that aspect, perhaps, that central banks will be watching pretty carefully. But um, you know, even though oil obviously jumped a lot in the overnight session in response to the, the OPEC headlines, it basically takes it back to, if we look at the, the price of Brent, pretty much back to, to where it was um, earlier in March. So we've just done a bit of a round trip. You know, Brent was about 85 bucks a barrel, got all the way down to, I don't know, about 72, 73, and now we've come all the way back to, to 85. If we were to move up to sort of 95 to 100, then I think that would start to become quite significant for the inflation story. And I guess this all comes at exactly the wrong time, just when central banks are perhaps starting to get a little bit more confidence that inflation has definitely peaked, the trajectory is lower, albeit perhaps not as quickly as they'd hoped, um, you know, upward pressure on on the oil price is, you know, at the margin, not exactly helpful. And I guess, you know, this is just a reminder that in terms of the broader inflation outlook, you know, we are dealing with a, a, a sort of framework or a, a backdrop where commodity markets, particularly for the hydrocarbons like oil, are structurally tighter than we are used to. And that's just a, a function of the fact that there's been 
much less investment in that sector um, in the last decade. And so what it means is that prices are now very sensitive to any sort of negative supply shock or any positive um, demand shock. And I think what that tells us is that um, we are going to have more volatility and inflation going forward. And this, um, you know, the last sort of 48 hours is is a classic example of exactly just that. Um, and for central mm. banks who are battling an inflation environment that's just too high, this is sort of unhelpful. Well, yeah. So did it, does it egg them on to do more? Or Because even though Robert Holtzman from the ECB was saying, well, he doesn't think it's going to have much of an impact. He's still very hawkish on rates. He's still saying 50 mm. basis points is on the cards for mm. May. Uh, he says if they slow down to 25 basis points, it's hard to go back. In fact, his exact words, if things in May haven't really become more terrible, I think we can afford uh, 50, another 50 basis points. So let's, uh, mm. that's what we're hoping for. We're hoping for a situation where things don't really become more terrible. That doesn't sound more terribly terrible. good, does it? <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty low benchmark, isn't it? Oh. So what, but generally, what does, yeah, it, no. I mean, uh, sent, I mean, it's, it's not going to impact the, because the, the, clearly he's not saying it's going to influence them in any way. It's not going to inf- in, uh, impact the RBA. I mean, uh, as you say, unless it becomes $100 a barrel, then, of course, you start to get into recession territory, don't you? You start to say, well, okay, that's going to slow things down, which, you know, so it could have the reverse effect. The central banks start to say, well, okay, uh, we, we can afford to cut rates then. I mean, it swings and roundabouts a bit, It is it? swings and roundabouts. I mean, I think it's, it is, um, you know, and, th- and that's always been, I guess, the, the sort of central bank take on you know, these spikes in oil prices and when they push inflation up, they have tended to look through that and say, well, it doesn't last forever. Um, and actually, maybe we mm. care a little bit more about the growth consequences of higher oil prices. Um, and so we're not going to hike just because oil prices push up inflation and we might be a bit more prepared to cut because we're worried about what it does to disposable incomes. Um, but I think the context for those decisions is is quite different now, just given what's happened to inflation over the last year or so. And the fact that you know, it still remains way too high relative to, to central bank targets. So I, I think, um, you know, this again just reflects the, the real complexity for central banks at the moment where they probably are worried, you know, looking one to two years ahead about the growth outlook, but they feel like their hands are a little bit tied just simply because um, inflation is still too high and not coming down as fast as they would otherwise like. Um, and they know that they are dealing with all of this in a background where some of these commodity markets are just structurally, you know, a lot tighter um, and far more vulnerable to price spikes. So I don't think it makes, you know, a huge amount of difference to, you know, the the, the next sort of lot of central bank meetings that, that come in, in, in the next sort of four to six weeks. But if oil does sort of now trade into a new range, say between 80 to $95 a barrel, then I, I do actually think that becomes, starts to become a little bit more problematic for central yeah. banks. And still, we're in a bit of a state of confusion, aren't we? If you look at the markets today, so I mean, certainly the share market, so tech stocks taking a beating on the NASDAQ, although Apple mm. shares uh, are up. But, you know, I guess that they're pretty well cashed up and they seem to know what their their, their business model is. So maybe they're safe. And Microsoft, uh, you know, sort of pretty well protected from all of this as well. Energy stocks shooting up four and three quarter percent on agri- aggregate. So, I mean, we've got this confusing pitch, haven't we? U.S. non-tech stocks are doing OK, but not so for Europe. So it's all a bit directionless, isn't it? So I wonder how that's going to play out in Oz today. Yeah, so it is uh, it is a bit of a confusing lead for for the local market. But I guess the, the big ticket item today is, is the RBA 
meeting. Yeah. Um, you know, where, sure. yeah, we should probably talk about that one. But, um, yeah, let's, exactly. Let's, let's get on to that then. Yes. So it's interesting in the sense that, um, the market sort of split a little bit. I think, um, you know, the, 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 some economists looking for a hike, like our colleagues at NAB Economics, although they acknowledge it's a pretty close call. And I think that's probably the way most people feel about it. If you've got a view, you're probably not like super convicted in that view. At the moment, because there are arguments for both. So, you know, in terms of, you know, why would they hike today? It's because, you know, the door is wide open. Other central banks have done it. So we've seen the Fed, the ECB, the Bank of England, they've all lifted rates in the last couple of weeks. Um, So there's no sense really that sort of global peers have pulled right back and paused. And some of those indicators that the governor talked about as being pretty significant to the rate outlook, like employment, uh, like the NAB business survey, um, have come in, you know, pretty robust. So, you know, they're telling you that the economy is still going okay. But we also know um, that I think the RBA are probably a little bit more confident that they've seen the peak in inflation um, and that they have hiked by 350 basis points and they know that monetary policy works with a lag. And there is evidence in the more interest rate sensitive sectors like housing, and we can come to some of that data in a minute, that that interest rate hikes have started to have a pretty meaningful impact. Um, and I think also, you know, in the minutes from the March meeting, it was clear that they they were sort of hoping to do a bit of a pause. I think the issue will be if they decide to pause, it's going to be a hawkish pause because we know in a couple of weeks we're going to get the next set of quarterly inflation numbers, which is, you know, the full Monty of all the inflation information. And the risk is that, you know, those numbers are still going to reflect this idea that inflation is very entrenched and, you know, very, very broad um, and that'll probably force the RBA's hand in in May, you know, if they don't go uh, in in April. So it's sort of really all, all down to just finessing the timing. Like, do you do it this month or do you wait for the numbers and feel like you've got more justification to do it in May? Um, so I think if they do pause today, the communication is going to be interesting because they're going to have to say, don't get too excited because we could well be back in in four weeks with another one. Yeah, and what does that do to the housing market? It's interesting, isn't it? Yesterday, dwelling approvals rose in February, 4% month on month. But of course, that's after a big fall in January, which was uh, revised up a little, Mm. but still 27.1% down. So that's, uh, and and it really is a detached houses versus apartments story as well, isn't it? Because apartment approvals are now at their lowest level since July 2012. Not quite so bad in the detached sector. And housing loan commitments down 0.9% month on month in February. That's the 13th month in a row. And two interesting figures there. First of all, the average value of loan commitments is still 21.4% higher than pre-pandemic in February 2020, while the actual number of owner-occupied finance commitments are 11.2% lower than pre-pandemic levels. So we've got fewer people paying more. I'm not sure how that all influences uh, what the RBA does, because I'm sure they're looking at all of these numbers, and I'm sure it... Uh, plays a, a hand in their decision. I'm just not quite sure how and why. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think what's what is. I mean, the building approvals numbers bounce around a fair bit, particularly those those approvals for apartments or or, or units. Um, private sector, you know, these are sort of detached houses. They were up 11 percent in the month, so that's that's a, a, a sort of positive outcome. But generally speaking, you know, what we really are starting to see is signs of stabilisation in some of the housing indicators. So we also got you know, the monthly number for house prices. They were up nationally by 0.6 of a percent, a strong number in Sydney up 1.4 percent. 
Yeah, rents are up 0.7% uh, in the month. And even with those mortgage application numbers, even though the aggregate numbers look pretty horrible, down about 31% year on year, starting to see in New South Wales and Victoria some signs of stabilisation and actually monthly increases in loans to owner-occupiers. So um, I think this is this is interesting in the sense that, you know, we know for this economy in particular, housing has really strong multiplier effects, you know, whether that's around consumption and employment. Um, and I'm not sure that the RBA right now would be wanting any sense that housing was starting to, to sort of come back. So they'll be watching that story um, pretty carefully uh, in the sense that, you know, we're not at the point where this economy can grow above trend because we still haven't dealt with the, the sort of inflation hangover from from post-pandemic. So, yeah, it, I think it's, you know, it's, like I said, it's a, it's a very complex environment for central banks at the moment. So they want, so you're saying they want it, they want to keep prices contained then in the housing sector? Well, it's, I mean, effect. you know, from a bigger picture perspective, if we, if we sort of say it's not, not all just about the RBA, I mean, it's really clear that we've got a structural undersupply of housing in this country. So net migration is running yeah. at very elevated levels, but we don't have enough housing and that's causing rents to pop up. Uh, they're 6% of overall inflation. So if they're running at sort of 10 to 20%, mm. that they're adding a meaningful amount to the overall inflation story. Um, and as I said, you know, housing is just one of those things that when it starts to get momentum, you know, the broad multiplier effects in the economy can actually be quite large. So yeah, it's, 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 it's quite difficult, I think, um, for the RBA at this point. And then this is also coming on top of the fact that, you know, there's clearly stress in the construction industry. So last week in Australia, another couple of building companies, uh, you know, went under. Um, and so, I think it's um yeah it's well, it's a very difficult set of circumstances. Yeah, when we clearly need more building going on, and, and mm. the RBNZ tomorrow, of course, there was a Centrix report out for New Zealand this morning, mm. showing that New Zealand mortgages in arrears rose for the seventh consecutive month, up twenty three percent year on year in February to eighteen thousand nine hundred, which takes the proportion in arrears to a three year high uh, in in New Zealand. So I mean, you know, the RBNZ will be no doubt looking at that as well. Uh, so apart from the RBNZ, which is tomorrow, we've got a podcast before then. We get uh, but. Over Overnight tonight, or down to, down to the rest of today, Germany's trade balance, uh, the ECB consumer expectations, the producer price mm-hmm. index for the euro area as well, which is expected to come down again. We get factory orders for the US. We get Hugh Pill from the Bank of England making a speech overnight. It's all, and uh, Donald Trump getting arrested as well. So get, so get your popcorn out for that one. But it's um, <laughs> it's it's largely second tier data, isn't it? Really today, it's the RBA really that's the focus. Yeah, RBA, RBNZ tomorrow, and then uh, um, yeah. non-farm you know, payrolls. payrolls at the end of the week. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. All right, very good. Uh, good to talk. Catch you again very soon. Thanks. Okay. Thanks, Phil. Bye-bye. That's JB Weir's Sally Old on the morning call from NAB. I'm Phil Dobby. I'm back again tomorrow morning for another one. See you then. Thanks for listening.